Well, good morning, Claude. Good morning, Dr. Bennett. Welcome you as well as everyone else. I feel welcome. I'm sure everyone else does as well. To the Bill Bennett Show. Yes. It's a podcast translates Trump if he needs translation. As several speakers made plain, he makes himself plain. Yes. Subtlety is, subtlety is not his thing. Ivanka talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> she, she did. She, and the kids would know, I expect. Mm-hmm. Um, we take a look at this administration. We're looking at what may be the next administration, Lord knows. And we address the things that concern America. Joining me today, Byron York, columnist of the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor, and really columnist journalist extraordinaire. I think he's the best. We'll also hear from John Yu. John is a law professor at Berkeley. He worked in the Bush administration. He's credited or discredited as the architect of the interrogation procedures, <laughs> you know. Credited or discredited. <laughs> He's, I, I'm for him. He's the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law, Director of the Korea California Constitution Center and the Law School's Program in Public Law and Policy. He's also a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I want to discuss a few things. First, we go right from the top because we were talking last night. We were watching the convention. And I said this, you and I have talked about, we've talked about this, you know, an honest conversation about race in America. Mm-hmm. And I said, good for the Trump team. They are trying to get black votes. A lot of black people hitting the podium at mm-hmm. the Republican convention. A lot of outreach. Everyone from Alice Johnson to Jack Brewer to, you know, the, the families. And um, they, they did a salute to uh, Detective Dorn, Officer Dorn, his wife. Um so, I, you know, I said to Mrs. Bennett, most Republican conventions, they just give it up. They just say, we're not going to get any black votes. They're trying. Um, they're making an effort. Will it have any effect? Number one, you're right. I mean, the effort. I mean, I, absolutely. You, you're 100% right. However, I think it goes beyond the black faces or voices to, to what they're saying. A lot of folks on the left... A lot of black uh, voters, you know, if, if you're saying the same thing you would hear, even if it were Trump himself saying it, President Trump, uh, I don't think it resonates. I think that, you know, uh, with the black voters who are going to vote Democrat, yeah, yeah. you know, I think that, 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 that you get someone up there that's 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 black, but also speaking the language and and the narrative or at least a variation of the narrative that you're OK with. That will probably make more of a difference than anything else. You don't see it, though. You don't see the votes. Uh, no, I don't see the votes. Okay. I mean, because I think the, if if there's an effort, it's an effort mainly targeted at black men. Sure, absolutely. Not going to be black women, but mm-hmm. black men. And if they can get those numbers up, three, four, five, six points, it could make a big difference. Well, we difference. talked about it. I think I think in 2016, there were more black men who voted for Trump than who would admit that they did or said that they yeah, would. Yeah, okay. Um, that... that I don't know if they'll reach that same number, even if they'll admit it or not, you know, uh, as far as black men who will vote for Trump again. You told me once back when, and I'm not trying to push you on this. Sure. I, I want mm-hmm. you to you know, tell the truth. You always do. About you know the, the thing they do bring up, quite apart from the anecdotes, is you know black unemployment being so low mm-hmm. and more jobs. And I remember you said something to me you know, maybe a year ago about friends of yours who said, you know, I, I, things have really improved for me. My business improved. I was able to move from this place to that place. It's real that the Trump economy was real for black Americans. Absolutely. 100% you, it was. And people believe that. Oh, people believe that. People felt that. People feel it. But they it, know won't, it, was it won't show up at the voting booth. No. So in, it's weird. That's weird, it's isn't weird. it? Well, in Washington, D.C., there was a mayor years ago, Adrian Fenty. You probably uh-huh. remember, I remember him. Mayor Fenty. And yeah. Mayor Fenty was good for the city. Um, but they, uh, and, and DC, you know, as far as residential, you know, has a huge African American population. Um, and, and, and the, the citizens of DC voted Fenty out, not because things weren't good for them, but because, and, the, and these were citizens, um, you know, uh, east of the river. I mean, you know, where most black folks live in DC. They voted him out, uh, and the polling was because most didn't feel connected to him. Had nothing to do with, <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, the, their economy, nothing to do with crime, everything to do with, I just don't connect to it. And, and Mayor Fenty was black. And they were like, we just don't connect Not to Not just him. black, African-American. Right. Because what went through my head when you were saying that, is Kamala Harris, who is not an African-American. Right. Right? Well, I mean, right. she's not. I mean, she, sure. she's the daughter of an Asian mother right. and a Jamaican father. father. So she's a person of color, mm-hmm. but she's not African-American. Right. But we claim her. Yeah, <laughs> of, course, of course you do. But do people connect? Or maybe that's why she did poorly in the, in the primaries. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if that will resonate. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so I see your Fenty example. So... People can say, yeah, things were good for me under Trump, and mm-hmm. I got a better job, and it's, but it's not where my votes go. I was literally talking to a friend about that this morning. And it could, I mean, from stocks and investments, 401K, everything's up. 
Uh, his business is going great. I mean, everything's good. He's, he's a Biden not, voter. He's not going to vote for Donald Trump. Okay. <laughs> it, it's, it's the connection. I mean, what we talked about. If you were to say to him why, he wouldn't say, look, I don't connect with him. He would say, what stuff Trump said or. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Thinking his heart, he's racist. Yes. Or, that's what it would be. This particular person what, probably wouldn't say that Trump's, that President Trump's a racist, but they would say that he appeals to and stokes the fires of people yeah. who hate me because of my skin. Yeah. Color. Yeah. So it's hard for me to believe he's racist. I mean, he's a New York guy. Yeah. I don't think he's got bias. I think it's all about the deal. And, you know, I don't think he cares about black or Jew or gay or. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Just, I mean, to know, a he, person, and yeah. we've heard this in 2016, you're doing the podcast uh, or in the radio show, uh, that so many would say that if the if the President Trump, if well, at the time candidate Trump would be the same Donald Trump, who we have behind closed doors and boardroom yeah, making yeah, deals, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and 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 you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that the country would fall in love with him. And I mean, when he first became president, remember he had guys like Steve Harvey, um, who's huge in the black community, Jim Brown. He had them all at the White House, and to a person, when they left the White House, had nothing bad to say about him. I know they loved him behind know, closed doors. It's the it's it's everything else that you know. And and, and I guess my point is, he seems what I've heard, he's he's natural with them. It's not forced, like, cool. hey, you're a black person, I'm a white person, and we're mm-hmm. going to get along. It was, how you doing? I mean, it was just, it was natural. All right, well, we'll see. I, I You know, I, again, I want to give them credit for trying, both in terms of the policy uh, and, uh, you know, the people who who bore witness. But, uh, speaking of that, speech was too long. President's speech was too long. Covered, and Ivanka covered the same things he did. Mm-hmm. And it was late. I, I don't know what, what this practice is about very late night for the, yeah, I'm the not speeches. Sure I, you know, it's always been it's the little, case. Yeah. Maybe it's just because I go, like to go to bed early, but you know, <laughs> but it was too long. But I, but you know, I think that some of the testimony of people was great. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Dorn talking about her husband, the Mueller's, oh, talking yeah. about their daughter. Wow! And they believe that if uh, Donald Trump had been president, that Kayla Mueller would not have been mm-hmm. would have been released. Mm-hmm. Horrible story. She's kidnapped. She's raped mm. by ISIS. And by the way, as Mrs. Bennett was pointing out. ISIS. Whatever happened to ISIS? You yeah, know? right. They're gone. Mm-hmm. We don't hear about some ISIS guy shooting up a nightclub anymore, or mm-hmm. or you know holding people hostage somewhere. I mean, it's uh, you know he he's got to give him credit on this. Thing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, he's 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 really got a record, and I I, I think that I think that record's really pretty impressive. Uh, anyway, I thought you know the testimony of uh, individual people was very impressive. I thought it was more impressive than the Democrat, and odd because the Democrats all these Hollywood people, but. It, the, the Democrat thing to me had a feel of a kind of PBS yeah, yeah, documentary. So. Mm-hmm. It was kind yeah. of gray, you know. Um, this one was splashier, obviously, as you'd expect from Trump. But, um, geez, I thought the speeches were well done, well crafted. And, uh, you know, just a lot of good uh, a lot of good remarks. And uh, identifying some stars, future stars. So did you, uh, I don't want to force your answer, but did you watch both conventions? I did. Which yeah, yeah, was yeah. a better convention? Uh, you know, I'll be honest. I was more intrigued with the Republican National Convention. Um, the only thing, the only thing about the Republican, I, I, I do wish. So the whole, um, you know, you'll have, uh, and there'll be no rule of law in the streets, and what you're seeing now is what you'll get with President Biden. That falls a little flat uh, to me, simply because, well, I mean. You know, President Trump's the president now, and so that's well, happening that's now your, under you. That's your, you're, you're taking that Democrat talking point right. for you. <laughs> oh, now it's what Biden said. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This trouble's going on now. It's, right, it's right. Donald Trump's America. But uh, Donald Trump would say, but you know, it's not because of me. It's because these governors and mayors aren't doing okay. what they should be doing. And, you know, when they called, when they asked me to send in the troops from Minneapolis, I did, and it calmed down things down. So, mm-hmm. okay. Right. But, um, I mean, I think the president has a point that they're, you know, they they were late to the game, the Democrats, in condemning this. Mm-hmm. I I guess I guess I think this is important because it's immediate, mm-hmm. and apparently Kenosha, Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is there's all those SH places up there, <laughs> Sheboygan, Oshkosh, Kenosha, um, is a swing district. So, but but I, I want to talk. We'll, we'll talk with Byron about. Um, what the real stakes are in this election, I think they they go beyond that. But the, but the immediate matters, and so we wake up this morning. I don't know if you saw it. Did you see the Rand Paul thing? Yeah, no, that's crazy. That's crazy. He and his crazy. wife are leaving. And this guy's been roughed up already by his neighbor. <laughs> right. But they're walking from the White House. Mm-hmm. I know that walk. Mrs. Bennett and I have done that at night with some after some events. Mm-hmm. And you know they are saying to people, people are saying we want to kill you, and 
Yeah. You know, DC cops, you know, mm-hmm. they're the cops. Thank God for the cops. So crazy. But I mean, yeah. I, I think those kind of immediate shots, those kind of immediate things. So, um, I think we'll move a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I believe. Yeah. That's what I believe. Yeah. All right. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Let's welcome Byron York, columnist, The Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. Byron, welcome back to the show. I want to start with the garden party. Melania's garden, I want to go from the small to the, what I think is the medium large to the large in terms of issues in this campaign. But for the benefit of the audience who haven't read your column, tell us about the garden. Melania's garden. Okay, you're referring to the White House Rose Garden, right? Yeah, yes, Melania. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, I am going to. Is I there another to garden you wrote about? I need to look up. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, what happened was. Is there another garden um, you wrote about? Did you write about the Madison Square Garden? <laughs> no, yeah, it's the know. only garden I've written about. All right, go ahead. Um, <laughs> Melania Trump directed a, an update and redesign of the White House Rose Garden. Now, the Rose Garden is used for tons and tons of events. I mean, it's not just like a little garden where you go out and contemplate. There are events all the time there. They involve uh, the press. They involve a lot of uh, chairs. They involve a lot of power, lights, plugs, all sorts of stuff. So this is a a working space. It's called the Rose Garden, but it's a working space. So she redesigns it and, and takes out a couple of crab apple trees that had had uh, been there since uh, since Bunny Mellon uh, helped redesign the garden for Jackie Kennedy uh, in the 19, early 1960s. Wow. In my view, it gives it kind of an updated, sleek, kind of European look, which it, you can see if you look at what Melania Trump has done with like the Christmas decorations and all sorts of things, that it's consistent, I think, with her view of things. Yeah. So, um, fine. She's It's done the garden. And the other thing is, she, she's technically updated it. She's put, for example, there's a uh, around the border, there's a, a path of limestone pavers. And underneath uh, it is all the wiring. There's all sorts of wiring channels and, and uh, utilities and ways for uh, people to operate cameras and okay. other equipment more easily. So, no problem, right? She, <laughs> this, enough this redesign the garden is details. <laughs> and people go nuts. I mean, some of the usual suspects. You would have thought she had uh, designed a new set for the Nuremberg rally. Uh, Howard Feynman, I mean, Howard Feynman's been a mainstream journalist in Washington for years. He tweets, the Trump family did its best to turn the lovely Rose Garden into a neo-fascist parade ground. I mean, where is that coming from? Yeah. Um, Kurt Eichenwald, now he has done some crazy stuff on Twitter. Uh, He comes out and says, this is a destruction of our history, something no other first lady had the gall to do. This is the first time I have been furious that first lady is a foreigner. She has no right to wreck our history. This is a a guy named Court Court Eichenwald. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He he gets some some blowback on that from some of his... A foreigner. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Read the quote again. A foreigner? What, What did he say? It is. This is the first time I have been furious that Flotus, First Lady of the United States, is a foreigner. She has no right to wreck our history. Now, uh, Mrs. Trump, you know, was born in, uh, she's a naturalized U.S. citizen. She was born in Slovenia. She came to the United States in 1996, 24 years ago, became a naturalized citizen in 2006, 14 years ago. This is the kind of thing that both sides, you know, celebrate at times. Um, but anyway, uh, Eichenwald thought that this was a corrupt foreign influence on the Rose Garden. And just in, just in regular Twitter, there was, there was tons of reaction. Um, uh, one, one person tweeted that, that uh, they brought a white supremacy vibe to the Rose Garden. Oh. And another one actually did use Nuremberg. Uh, she was going for that Nuremberg rally grounds look. Gotcha. Um, and it was just, so it was just nuts. And if I may say a little more, because you always let me ramble a little bit. I look into this, and there's something called the Committee for the Preservation of the White House. It's existed for a long time. Yeah. They did a study of the Rose Garden, of the history and the condition of Rose Garden, and it, they made a 200-page report before you know turning a spade of dirt. 
in in this renovation. And it was very, very careful. And some of the trees that were removed, they weren't just you know cut down and, and thrown in the chipper. They were uh, actually relocated to other parts of the White House grounds. So they didn't kill anything. And this was a very carefully planned, carefully executed thing. And it, in my view, it it improved it. And, and by the way, it looked in, looking at some of the history of the Rose Garden. Bunny Mellon does this in, in, I guess it must have been 1961 or 62. And then in 1981, she's still around, and the, the Nancy Reagan invites her to come to the White House to, to assess the Rose Garden and update it. And she actually recommends taking out a couple of the trees, which is precisely what Melania Trump did. I mean, anybody who has a backyard knows that sometimes when you plant something, it grows to be maybe bigger than you thought it would be, or it grows out of the proportion that you had originally planned, or whatever. It's just a a gardening thing, and it has nothing to do with the Nuremberg rally. And the other thing removal of some of these trees does is it shows more of the White House. You know, the the colonnade that goes along there, you can see it better. And so um, uh, it, it's just been kind of crazy. So um, let's talk about the, 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 not the Rose Garden, but the South Lawn. I guess that was last night, right? Yeah. So you saw the crowd sitting all close together, no masks. I was watching yeah. CNN was going nuts on this. Is this going to hurt the president or the cause? No, I don't think so. You mean the, the, the lack of social distancing at, I, well, the, uh, I, I, at the rally? Did you see the front row of the cabinet? They were all unmasked except for the HHS secretary, Azar. <laughs> yeah. I guess he had to wear the mask, well, you know. I mean, some of them. I mean, not everybody was tested. By the way, I, I went to the White House um, on uh, Wednesday and interviewed the president. Yes, I know. And you have to take a test when you go there. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I arrive early and I go to the appointed place for my test, which I had not had one before. It was unbelievably easy yeah. uh, and non-invasive, by the way. You know, the, the, the original ones are apparently, were apparently somewhat painful, um, but it was just literally no problem at all. So anybody who's around the, and, and they say, you know, we're not going to tell you if it's negative, just so no news is, is good news. Uh, and we'll only, we'll only come back to you if it's, yeah. you know, positive it, and you know uh, 30 minutes later I was in the white in the oval office with the president so I'm assuming it was negative but everybody around him everybody who gets close to him has taken uh, uh, coronavirus tests and I, I assume that he himself is maybe the most tested man on the planet so uh, you know there was there were there were probably a lot of people at that uh, event last night who had had tests in the you know recent past. Okay, let's move to uh, troubles and uh, the case against Biden, or at least part of the case, because my hidden agenda here is uh, I, I don't think, maybe, maybe they're right, but I don't think the White House strategy here is hitting the big and most important things to do vis-a-vis Biden. Let's talk first about kind of the riot stuff and, you know, yep. explosions and everywhere from Kenosha to Portland. And, uh, you know, you saw Rand Paul last night. Poor Rand Paul. Boy, he's, you know, becoming a pinata. Leaving the White House, he and his wife, and they're set upon by a mob and rescued by the police. So people see this, and it has an immediacy. I understand that. And so it distresses and bothers people, and I understand that Kenosha is a swing district. So this, this, this will matter, and the fact that Biden was late to the party, late to talking about this and condemning yep. this, this will matter to the electorate? I think so. Uh, so why don't, we, why don't we talk about it in the context of the speech last night? Because I do think the speech last night, which was, which was long, uh, and it sagged in places, yeah. uh, but I also think that it served to delineate the attack lines that Trump will use against uh, Joe Biden in the coming campaign, you know, subject to the changing events, of course. Um, And the first one, by the way, uh, was jobs in the economy. I mean, basically, Joe Biden is going to take your job and send it to China. And the second one was order, public order and public safety. And by the way, the third one was Joe Biden's nearly half century in Washington. So if there's anything you don't like about the last half century in Washington, Joe Biden did it. but anyway, on the on the public order, I, you know, I think Trump pointed out that during the Democratic convention, there was just absolute radio silence about the violence that had been going on around the country. Now, 
by the way, I think um, uh, you, you've seen more attention to it now that they have a case of what they believe is right-wing violence, a 17-year-old who yeah. takes a, an AR-15 on his own to, to this you know, riot, and he ends up shooting and killing two people and shooting a third person. Had absolutely no business being there with a gun like that. Uh, I, you know, I think the circumstances are going to make the case pretty complicated. Um, but it's it was a crazy, crazy thing to do. And the reason it could happen, I think, is the fact that police have kind of abdicated their responsibility in a lot of these situations. Um, so uh, Trump. Uh, was able, I think, to point out that the Democrats have been just very, very quiet about this. And what was kind of extraordinary that went on at the same time as, as the Republican convention, like on day three, day two, three, and four, was um, there's apparently, there has been some polling. There was a Marquette University poll about Kenosha, and the county in which Kenosha is in was very, very tight. I think Trump won it by 250 votes or something. And um, Marquette had done polling, what, a month or a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago, just on favorability toward Black Lives Matter. Uh, and they did it again recently, and uh, it's gone way down. And so I think what what you saw was, there was this famous clip on CNN where uh, Don Lemon is discussing it with Chris Cuomo, I believe, saying that, you know, they got to do something that's showing up in the polling. And then I think many conservatives said, well, you know, they, they weren't as disturbed by the, the reality, the actual violence, the actual unrest, the actual suffering, the actual disorder. But no, if it's going to show up in the polls, then we better do something. So I think that um, the fact that it is showing up in the polls indicates that people are looking. And, you know, in my lifetime, this is so interesting. And it, in my lifetime, and I think most everyone's lifetime, whenever there's civil disturbance, the government, the leaders, are on the side of order. And maybe they're wrong. Maybe they're just, maybe they're too hard ass or something, but they're on the side of order. And starting, I think, uh, w- with the Ferguson matter in uh, 2014 with Obama, the, the government or the leadership seem to be on the side of disorder. And that's certainly the case locally in Portland, in Seattle, in Minneapolis, in Chicago, in New York, in lots of places. And crime, you have to remember, not just disorder or riots or mobs, but just crime is just going up tremendously. It's gone up a lot yeah. in Portland. Yeah. Yeah. It's going up enormously in New York where the, where the mayor has released lots and lots of prisoners, and he's basically tied the hands of the police in many, many ways. Um, so, of course, people are going to notice this. Public safety is the most important issue there is. Okay. If there's okay. no public let's, safety, uh, let's underline it becomes that. the most important issue. All right. It is the most important. It trumps, it's not the economy, stupid, it's public safety. When public safety is at there, risk. When there is... When there is public safety, it's not as big an issue. But when public safety goes away and there's a threat, okay. it's always the biggest issue. When people are afraid for their lives or their property or that of their loved ones, it's the biggest issue there is. All right. You're with John Jay here, Federalist number three. Safety is the first, ob- for safety is the first object of government. Okay. That's, you know, that's the first reason, main reason we have it. That's our political philosophy so it is a big it is a big deal all right let me let me tell you what i'm thinking and then just let you reflect about it I, i'm and this may reflect just too much a, a beltway swamp uh you know a perspective that, that i have i have been living here a long time when i look at the situation i say my gosh if biden wins and you know and i'm a trump guy if biden wins and they win the senate the democrats win the senate you may never see conservative legislation again filibuster will be ended they will dc will get two more senate will get two senators puerto rico may get two senators that's the end of conservative governance uh, for the foreseeable future am i wrong about that no i think you make a a a good point and i i do believe first of all you have to understand how much of a sense of grievance there is among democrats um, so that when and, and when you have a sense of grievance and when you have this belief that the other side is evil, then you have this idea that whatever you're doing is justified because of the gravity of the threat. Uh, 
And I agree with you about the legislative filibuster. I think that if you have a um, Democratic majority, uh, the very first time Republicans block something, use the filibuster to block something, um, they're going to kill the filibuster. I do not think people like Joe Manchin, uh, there'll be enough of them or they'll be strong enough to stop a Democratic majority from eliminating the filibuster. So that way, if you have a Democratic House, they pass a bill by one vote. The Senate passes a bill by one vote. The president signs it. There's a new state. Um, I, you know, I think some people think that you know, since adding uh, states is so rare, it's been 50 years since the state was added. Um, adding states is so rare. I think they think it's kind of like it's hard, like um, uh, like amending the Constitution or something. It's actually not yeah. that hard. If, yeah. you know, if there's a movement in the state to to join the union. If, um, you know, if a majority of Congress votes and the president signs it, it happens. Um, there's been a statehood movement for a long time in the District of Columbia. And, um, gosh, I wrote about this not that long ago. They got a vote in the House in the either the late 80s or the early 90s. And it was soundly defeated. And uh, there hasn't been another vote until this year. And there was a there was a vote and. Um, and a ton. I mean, uh, almost all Democrats voted for it, and it passed the House back in the back when it didn't pass. Uh, there were a hundred plus Democrats who voted against DC statehood. People like John Dingell, yeah, okay, uh, okay, who who said, "Look, if if you want a, a voting representative and senator, you can move to Maryland." You know, um, and that kind of thinking is completely gone in today's Democratic Party. Well, let me, clearly. So um, I'm looking at everything. Okay. So let's go back to what you said. When there is disorder, uh, when public safety is a question in people's minds, it, it trumps everything, including yep. D.C. statehood, Puerto Rican statehood, filibuster, because it's immediate yep. and it's, it's, it's the most important promise. But in terms of long-term consequences – I think the things we've just discussed are bigger, much more consequential. Sooner or later, you'll get you'll get order. I think, I, even with Democrats, I believe. Um, but uh, these changes could be the most important, more important than you know, uh, providing welfare benefits to to uh, illegals, uh, opening up the border. Though that's a big deal. I'm just trying to get. What are the biggest, the biggest, most consequential issues, whether well, you know, they're, what, whether they're um, leading with them or not? I don't know if you've talked about this. Uh, you know, there's this group called the Transition Integrity Project. Uh-huh. Yes. And they, uh, it's a lot of former officials, um, uh, all, you know, extremely anti-Trump uh, journalists. And they got a little news a few weeks ago by wargaming a number of scenarios for the election. And uh, all of the news coverage was Trump won't accept the results of the election if he loses. This is their war games. And actually, scenarios in which uh, Biden won, um, Trump left the White House and Biden took office on Inauguration Day. Um, One without any trouble at all and the other with uh, a little bit of uh, um, after contesting the election and losing. Anyway. Um, the scenario in which one party actually would not accept the result was the scenario of a narrow uh, but decisive Trump win, like what happened in 2016. He loses the popular vote. He wins in okay. the Electoral College. Okay. Now, that, mean he, that means he wins. Yes, it does. Um, but in this case, Biden, uh, who was played by John Podesta, so this is a yes. high-level group here, yes, yes, yes. Um, Biden would not accept the result, and they tried to get – uh, and during the transition period, they tried to get to force uh, Democratic governors of states that Trump had won, uh, tried to force them to uh, uh, change the electors, uh, switch out the electors to put in Biden elected. They came up with all the, all, all sorts of crazy stuff. And one of the things there was there was a time in which they made demands of Trump that if you, if we allow you to take office. You just want the presidency, but if we allow you to take office, you're going to have to give us certain stuff. And one of those scenarios was statehood for the District of Columbia, statehood for Puerto Rico, and um, division of California into, I think, five states, which would be 
Yeah. So at least four of those would be yeah. all Democrats. Well, so yeah. that's eight senators in California yeah. and then yeah. another yeah. four. Yeah. 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 So that's a do- adding a dozen yeah. new Democratic senators. By the way, there's this, there is talk you know, out west of the state of Cascadia, so, which would be taken from parts of uh, Oregon, Washington, and California. Um, but anyway, this idea of, 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 of packing the nation, you know, packing the Senate, um, is is a cherished goal of theirs. And it you know, if if they have control of the Senate, and if they kill the filibuster, and if they have the House and the White House, in other words, like the situation that existed um, just ten years ago, twelve years ago, uh, minus killing the filibuster, uh, then they can do a lot of this stuff. All right. So, but but why? If he wins, on what grounds do they have a, any basis for making demands? Oh, because they have, because they tried. they look. They're trying to undermine the system. Look, this is just in the war game. Okay, okay I'm not. All right, all right. Um, but they they're trying to get electors uh, to have Democratic governors disqualify the electors from their state and send okay, right. pro Biden electors to the electoral college. Okay. Uh, there's a lot. You know, there's litigation galore. And in the end, by the way, according to this war game by the Transition Integrity Project, January 20 comes, and nobody knows who's the president, and both sides are looking to the military yeah. to decide what's, who's going to be the next president. Yeah. This, is an extra, this is a terrifying scenario they came up with, and all of the news stories about this had Trump refuses, <laughs> sure, <laughs> except sure. results of the election, when the most consequential one was Biden refusing to accept the results of the election. All right, but yeah, okay, but but if they if they win, if Biden wins, yeah. and they get the Senate, they yeah. can do all this stuff. Yeah, adding states is look. They believe that the Senate is so anti-democratic, and look, the the Senate is not supposed to be purely democratic. It's just it's not. Um, I mean, in the original uh, uh, constitutional right. scheme, senators were not elected by right. Right. you know voters. Um, sure. And, you know, there have been people who felt that uh, that things have been going downhill since the 17th Amendment, uh, which which was right. a direct election, popular election of senators. I, I just want to come back to this main point, that if Biden wins and they get the Senate, they can do all this stuff and probably will do a lot of this stuff. Oh, yeah, Absol- absolutely. How do you see the absolutely. Senate, by the way? How do you see the Senate? No, it looks really tight. Yeah, I mean, you got, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I mean, some of it, I think, is going to depend on the presidential race. You know how how sure. well Trump does. There's not a chance um, Republicans take the House back, right? I don't think so. You know they'll always tell you there is, and you know, as as I say, bless their hearts, they're they're you know you always have to work in the belief that you can win. Uh, but no, I don't. Th- I don't I, think there's I, a chance. They're gonna- I, I view the Senate fifty fifty. I view the presidency fifty fifty. That's how I view both right now. That's what I view. Mm-hmm. Well, we got what sixty six days left. I think I, I think you're. You're right on that. I just you don't do. know. Okay. Given what we've just been talking about, should they shift gears and say, hey, there's going to be 58 states and, you know, 40 of them are going to be Democrat? and Or should they stick with the public no, safety? No, I think that would terrify people. <laughs> I think it would terrify people. So they should. Uh, and, and then, by the way, we'll add, you know, half a dozen justices to the Supreme Court, by the way. Well, then shouldn't so that we'll, be part of the we'll Republican? Stack everything. But shouldn't that be part of the Republican strategy then? Well, these are voices on the left that Joe Biden might be able to credibly disassociate himself. From. Why would he want to? Well, he'll he'll probably have to walk a fine line. But well, look what he said. Look what he's done with defund the police. Look at that. Um, he has said in public, "I do not support defunding the police." Okay, well, that's good. And all the press reports say Biden doesn't support defunding the police. But then look at some of the podcasts that he's done with left-wing advocates, um, activists. There was one that was a a really famous, uh, Addie Barkin is a uh, a left-wing, real prominent left-wing activist. And so Addie Barkin says to, to Biden, look, defunding the police, what we're really talking about is redirecting police funds funds away from the police to things like affordable housing, mental health care. Yeah. Now, you would support that, wouldn't you? And sure. Biden says yes. Yeah, sure I would, yeah, of course. So, now, what, what does that mean? So, what is it, what, when he comes out and says, I do not support defunding the police, 
What does that mean when no, you look I, at the yeah, bargaining? Yeah, well, I don't support breaking California into five states, but then they get re- they get elected, and and people say, hey, if we break it into five states, you're going to be guaranteed re-election. Yeah, the other thing is, you know, it's it's how uh, strong a president uh, Biden would be, and and we know what Trump says about that. That you know, he, yeah, no, he barely be, remember yeah. his name, but um, if if Biden does, if he's a fairly weak non-energetic president um and there are a lot of you know lefty activists around him that could be important well i think looming over this i mean one good commercial republicans are running is you know bernie sanders saying you know we you know we (laughs) people said that what we were believing what we were recommending was impossible but not now not anymore yeah that, that was good and you know uh trump has made a lot of um you know after bernie lost the two campaigns did created something called the Biden Sanders Unity Task Force, and they created a, 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 a policy document, which Trump likes to call the manifesto. And it's all the areas they agree on, like, you know, climate change, criminal justice reform, et cetera. And it's pretty far to the left. It's farther to the left than yeah. Biden started this yeah. campaign with. God knows it's way farther to the left than Biden was years ago. Um and um, so I think Republicans can, you know, quite legitimately associate Biden with Bernie Sanders. Look, there it is. It's the, the report of the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force. So let's just come back to being advisors to the White House if we were, which we're not. Um, no, we're not. We're not. Um, I mean, I might, I might try, but you, you can't, you can't give in your job. I'll but, pass on that. But you know, should they, should they continue to make public safety and order the number one, or should they talk about twelve new states and and the filibuster well, and a that, whole new Supreme um, Court? You know, if you listen to the president, jobs in the economy were very big, and this has the advantage of going after what the Democrats think is their strongest point, because the Democrats think that Trump has completely wrecked the economy. And you you have to you have to vote for Biden if you want an economic future because Trump has wrecked the economy. Now what Trump is saying is, I unleashed the economy. I helped create the. Of course, he would say I created the strongest economy in history. Now you know what happened. This virus happened, and but we're we're getting past that, and you're seeing growth just shoot up. And Trump, I think yesterday was talking in public about. Um, a report from the Fed in Atlanta that predicted 20 plus percent growth in GDP in the third quarter. Uh, I have no idea if that's actually going to happen. But the fact is, we have seen extraordinary. I mean, just just as we had seen extraordinary plunges in uh, employment and GDP, we've seen extraordinary rises. Um, so Trump is saying, "Look, I created the greatest economy. Did you? Were you better off since yeah. I became president?" You know you were, yeah. and you know what happened. You understand what happened. This is not some Trump policy. You understand what happened. The virus hit hit the whole world, and now we're coming back, and we're roaring back, and you're going to roar back better with me than with Joe Biden. Yeah. And, you know, is that too complicated a, a, an appeal to make? I mean, I, I think voters do know why the economy went to hell. Maybe they disagree with some of the some of the lockdown policies that helped lead to that, but they know why this happened. And so the effort to sort of blame it on Trump that Democrats are doing, it's not, I think, you know, going to be fully successful. That reminds me of one other thing, which I've been saying, and I thought I'd, I'd hear it in the speech. I didn't. It was implicit. But one real difference is, you know, Biden said, I'm ready to shut it down. If scientists say shut it down, shut it down. Yeah. Trump will not shut it down. He will not do it again. I mean, I, I know. He will not shut it down. And also, I, I thought Britt Hume had, who's been following this whole virus stuff and the lockdown issue very closely. I mean, I think he had the right responses. Which scientists? Yeah, I mean, right. you're getting, uh, you right. get all sorts of different things from different scientists, right. uh, all that's of right. whom have credentials. That's right. So, <clears throat> you know, which yeah, Harvard-educated doctor do you want to listen to on this and that's that's the fallacy in all of this democrats we listen to science thing it's because science itself is divided on this and you could come up with radically different policies based on the advice of different qualified people 
It's actually, it's the Harvard doctors versus Stanford doctors, as I as I see it. But for, it actually breaks down in some ways that way. But Scott Atlas from Stanford and all that. But but also the CDC, you know, changing changing directions all the time and masks, no yeah. masks, testing. Now you have testing. No, you know, symptomatic, asymptomatic. Anyway, it's it's confusing. All right. Um, do you believe the polls? You believe Biden six eight points ahead? Yeah, I don't have any. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't have any problem with that. I mean, the whole issue of the shy Trump voters is is real. But I, you know, I never knew yeah. how big it was in um, yeah. 2016. I don't know now. And by the way, you know, the, the polls are, are a snapshot in time, as they say, yeah. which means they're a snapshot right now. They don't tell you what's going to happen on election day. And right, the polls, the last polls before election day in 2016 nationally were pretty close to what happened. They had Hillary up by two, two and a half points, and she won the popular vote by two, two and a half points. Uh, they really, the, the polls weren't bad. Um, there were some state polls that were really poor, and in, especially in the three big states that put Trump over the top and then beyond, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Um, so those, you know, you really got to be careful about. But, you know, nationally, is Biden ahead right now? I would say, yeah. Okay, I, just one last thing, because Claude and I had a fairly long discussion about this before you came on, which is um, black vote. I, I'm, I'm glad that Republicans aren't conceding this time and just ignoring black voters. They've tried, and a lot of the speakers are black. And, you know, any yeah. chance that he picks up uh, significantly three, four, five points, go from 8% to 12 13% going after, I guess, primarily black men. Uh, do you see that as a real possibility? I see it as a what does Claude say? No, I was saying I, I don't see it. I mean, just much like 2016 is the one, the ones who do probably are, aren't saying they will. So it makes you up lower in polls than, than usual. But I think he's, he's yeah. lost some folks in the last year, especially with a lot of the social unrest and things like that. Uh, and and mm-hmm. seemingly not being uh, sympathetic to it. Yeah. Um, I think Claude is probably right on this. I mean, this, is, this has been kind of a Republican fantasy for a long time because, you know, um, I think the lowest black percentage for a Democratic candidate was uh, like 88, maybe John Kerry, some yeah, 88 yeah, percentage yeah. percent. And then, of course, Obama was in the mid-90s. Yeah. I mean, the black vote was nearly unanimous for Obama. Um, so and, and one of the reasons Hillary Clinton lost is not that black voters voted for Trump. It's that she didn't uh, inspire them to go to the polls in the way that Obama yeah. had. Yeah, and so I, I think you can make a pretty good argument that Clinton lost the presidency by being unable to fully replicate the Obama coalition in just a very few places: Philadelphia, Detroit, Milwaukee. Um, but so it, you know, will there be uh, more? Will black men vote more for Trump? I mean, it's kind of an appealing idea, and the you're right, the RNC is really trying. Um, but I, I wouldn't count on it. Yeah. All right. Very good. Hey, Byron, thank you very, very much. Always enjoy it. Really good. Really, really good. And last golf words, anything to watch for? Or? No, as Claude and I were discussing, I mean, we're seeing this weird schedule of major championships. We've, we've only had one. We're only going to have three. We've only had one so far, which is the PGA, which was played without um, an audience, I mean, without a gallery, you know, on, this cl- on, the, on the course, which as a TV watcher was fine with me. I had no problem with that. So I've been enjoying watching um, golf again. It, it really, to me, it hasn't been diminished by any coronavirus restrictions. So I'm actually looking forward to the U.S. Open. And then the Masters in November, which is really going to be interesting. Oh, I'm looking forward to college football, and uh, thank God for the SEC. As someone said, the SEC would probably play in nuclear winter, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I had this fanciful idea about, you know, just let everybody else drop out. Uh, and and the SEC, just take Clemson, you know, into the SEC, send Vanderbilt out, and just and that's your season anyway. That's where all the great teams are. And this almost happened. Because the ACC opened up and brought Notre Dame in. So yeah. you have these two major conferences. Ohio State, I think the Big Ten is a, was a total disaster and loss. And somebody wrote a column saying Ohio State, which was in a lot of, a lot of preseason picks, was picked as number one. is the only um, 
only an institution in Ohio not playing football this year. So uh, the high schools are playing. A lot of the colleges are playing. I think that was a real mess. But um, Yeah, the team sports, the contact sports, I mean, those are yeah, you know, yeah, completely yeah. different. And, I, I've you know, I've read about the struggles of the NBA, completely apart from all this Black Lives Matter politics stuff. I mean, just dealing with the, with the virus um, has been, you know, kind of crazy for them. And it's just golf is just so much easier because um, because if, if all goes well, you're not hitting each other. <laughs> yeah, uh, the caddies keeping their distance from the players, I guess, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, look, nobody is like you know embracing all the time except when the, the winning putt is sunk. So yeah, this, this, there have been golfers who've gotten it, and then they just leave the tour for a while. But there has not been some huge outbreak in the uh, PGA Tour because. They're a bunch of, you know, golfers are a bunch of independent contractors. Sure. Know, sure. And right. they, they're they not on team. There's no team bus. They don't uh, hang out together <laughs> all the time. No team and, bus. Uh, and they're all right. competing with each other, right. you know, all no, the time. No common locker room for all of them, right? That's right, huh? Yeah. Well, I think they do have locker rooms, okay. but I think it's not in the sort of style of yeah, got it. Of, uh, football, basketball. No team bus. I love that. Thanks, Byron. Thanks a lot. Okay, Bill. Enjoyed it. All right, Byron. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's run through a couple of emails, Claude. Okay, sure. Because that's a good way to get the juices going here. And then um, then I I really want to talk to John Yu. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, start with our buddy Joe uh, in Orlando, Florida. Uh, He says, uh, hey, Bill, just finished listening to your podcast with Harmeet Dillon. That was a great episode. Yeah. Anyone didn't listen to that, go back uh, to listen to it. Thanks to both of you for the open discussion on Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris. Uh, he says, uh, your show happened to fit within, uh, to fit in with my scripture reading this morning, Matthew 24, 28. Jesus states, wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. No disrespect uh, intended. I believe this describes the current Democratic Party's run for the presidency. Uh, just a thought. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you also uh, on being a great resource for open thought during my past rewarding public school teaching career. Yeah, no, you're entirely welcome. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Good scripture verse there. Right. Vultures. Okay. Yeah. Although I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm not sure w- what he means by that. But read the passage. Oh, yeah, sure. He says, um, he says, wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Well, um, you know, that we're, in, we're in trouble now with uh, COVID and mm-hmm. uh, the jobs and uh, the vultures are coming in and, and, uh, and picking at the bodies and, okay. uh, you know, making this campaign political issue. That's what I think. He means. Okay. Okay. By the way, yeah, Joe, if you want to um, email in and let us know. Yeah. Because yeah. I believe Jesus was talking about end time. So I'm wondering, was he, does he I think we're in the end time? I hope not. <laughs> Could be. Right. Who knows? All right, our buddy uh, Don uh, emailed We in. won't know we're in the end time until it ends, you know? Right. And, and then uh, it's like, oh, I guess we're done. Yeah. <laughs> so our buddy Don emails in. The subject is Portland and beyond. He says, Bill and Claude, I don't expect you to read this on air because if you say it out loud, you'll be thrown off the air. Well, no one can throw us off the air. I mean, we're pretty much independent Yeah, with this podcast. Anyway, uh, he says, plus, I'm sure you both would disagree. Uh, and, and and we don't mind, you know, Aaron thinks that we disagree. You know, just kind of discuss and debate. Sure, sure. He says, here's my argument. The situation in Portland uh, can only be stopped by utilizing the Israeli method for riot control. Snipers should be placed on the roof, roof of the federal courthouse uh, and those individuals utilizing lasers to blind the police, throwing firebombs, assaulting the police, or doing any other acts of violence to harm or cause death of any law enforcement officer uh, or individual should be shot with live ammunition. Extreme, yes. But these riots are a direct attack on this country for the purpose of overthrowing the government. Uh, this is a civil war, like it or not. The only way to stop it, uh, to stop an invading army bent on your destruction, is to meet force with superior and, yes, lethal force. God help us. Uh, be careful we don't get into the, the civilian here, the vigilante thing. That mm-hmm. was, of course, what's hap- what happened in Kenosha. We had right. a 17-year-old kid who... Decided to get, stock up his rifle and go out and kill some some of the protesters, maybe violent protesters. Still, that's not not what we want, right? But uh, no, I see the point. And what the police are being subjected to now is uh, impossible. So I, I, I wouldn't, you know, obviously real precautions, and you got to have, have real approval and 
check it out, and maybe you got to double check before you fire. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, you know the situation where they try to lock the police into a burning building. My God, you know, sure, right. Uh, your life's in danger. Yo, take the action that's necessary. I'm, I'm not afraid of that. Uh, let's see, our buddy Peter in Ottawa, Canada. I says, hi, Bill and Claude. Love the podcast. I do have a question for Mr. Bennett. I was wondering why he actually believes the polls. I've been surprised how many commentators are trusting the polls. There have been many polls over the last few years, not just in the U.S., Brexit polls, Australian election polls that have been way off. I think most polls are either skewed to one side politically or most people don't answer truthfully. Oh, we talk about this a little bit with Byron. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but there are good polls or bad polls. I do think they give us a good, decent snapshot. I would say right now, right now, Biden would be elected. I, you know, I, mean, I could be wrong on that. It could be this big hidden Trump vote. But um, I think I think they, they give us an indication. It's all we got. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise you're just guessing. And um, I don't think they're certain by any means. Um, do I think Donald Trump will win? Yes. Which tells you what I think of the polls. All right. And we've got uh, our uh, guy, Jack, uh, emailing. And he says, uh, uh, dear Mr. Bennett, I hate the fact uh, that I'm looking for a socialist behind every tree uh, and under every rock, but I just can't help myself. Three data points to consider. During the uh, run-up to the uh, 2008 presidential election, then-Senator Obama said that he plans to fundamentally change America. Yes, he did. Uh, then he says, not long after the election of uh, Donald J. Trump, President Obama made a statement to the effect that America just wasn't ready, a code for not progressive enough, for him to complete this transformation and that his vision for America was 20 years ahead of its time. And then point number three, he says, between December 2019 and April 2020, Joe Biden's primary challengers dropped out of the race for the Democratic Party's no- uh, nomination. Sanders, uh, inexplicably so as well. Well, you know, uh, fine to reference Obama, but this uh, this crowd and this manifesto and this these positions are to the left of Obama. I mean, Obama may have wanted all this stuff, but mm-hmm. wasn't explicit about it. These guys are explicit about it. This is a real this is a real left wing thing. I, I I guess there's advantage in talking about socialist, though I think it's overused. But this will be a transformation of the country um, mm-hmm. with a Biden election and a Democrat Senate. Um, more and more attention, I think, has to be looked at in regard to the Senate. And I think that's a toss-up. Yeah, he also says he wonder who is the true leaders of the Democrat Party. Uh, Tony Perez, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Barack Obama, or perhaps Bloomberg or someone that uh, really in the shadows like George Soros. Well, I think Soros has a role, but I do think it's Pelosi and I think it's Schumer. Mm-hmm. And I think the uh, the squad has an influence and I think Bernie Sanders is very, very important and his people, and they need to keep Bernie Sanders' people very happy. One last thought from our, yeah. uh, our friend Jack. He says, uh, love your podcast. My only complaint is that you're only doing one a week. Surely there's enough uh, grist for the mail <laughs> to do one or two podcasts a day. Well, I think there was a TV show, The Loud Family, where they followed them around all day and all mm-hmm. afternoon and evening and recorded everything and you can hear me ra- you can hear me ranting all day Should i just follow you around with it mrs ben and i are ranting all day <laughs> but i don't i'm not sure it's it's pod worthy well right before the podcast mrs bennett's always pod worthy well of course i mean just before this podcast mrs bennett was in here with us in our studio here talking about scholarships and higher education how they're taking well, money from students. i don't know how she does it i mean we watched you know like five hours of the convention last night it was over 11 30 i went to bed i said do you come into bed she said no uh uh our younger son wants to watch a movie, so we're going to watch Braveheart. I said, Braveheart? That's like nine <laughs> hours long. <laughs> so, I, you know, I don't know when she got into bed. But right. Anyway. And she was up early this morning. Yeah, yeah up Scholarships in higher education. Twinkling, sparkling, talking about scholarships. For her kids at Best for, Friends. For her best kids friends. Kids in the inner city who, who we help get college scholarships. It's a real deal, yeah. yeah. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now, John Yu, professor at Berkeley. Manuel Heller, Professor of Law, Director of the Korea California Constitution Center and the Law School's Program in Public Law and Policy. He's also a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, John. How are you, Bill? Good. Good to talk to you. Congratulations on the book. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. Defender-in-Chief, and this is really interesting. We're going to get into it in a minute. John, I just want to pick up on a conversation I just had with Byron York, and I was saying that 
I understand the public safety issues. When you have public safety in order, it's not a big issue. When you don't have it, it rises to the top, consistent with John Jay, Federalist Three, who said safety, you know, is the first object of government. Yeah. So I understand that being first and foremost. However, when I look at what the Democrat agenda is of this crowd, I see things like statehood for D.C., statehood for Puerto Rico, maybe breaking up your state into into four states or five states, end of filibuster. All things which I take it they could do, two questions for you here, constitutionally, question mark, and second, which would have momentous and long-term consequences. You might never see conservative legislation again. Would you comment on that? I know I'm hitting with you this hitting the, you with this uh, just off the top. Bill, thanks for having me back. And actually, it fits in with the theme of my book, which is the people who are really uh, accusing Trump of being the one who's going to destroy the Constitution, overturn our political order. They're actually ones who are promising to do that. And exactly as you say, it goes well beyond the examples you gave. But it's just recently they've proposed adding two states to the union, uh, giving uh, Democrats four senators, which runs against American tradition where states were admitted in pairs so that usually had a Republican state and a Democrat state, so you wouldn't upset the balance of political power in the Senate. Uh, You also had proposals to pack the Supreme Court, uh, which would also only take congressional legislation, as would the admission of states, uh, from nine justices to 15, uh, again, uh, totally upsetting the balance on the court. You've had proposals to get rid of the Electoral College uh, by having uh, a majority of the states agree just to give all their electoral votes to whoever wins the majority vote. Uh, That you would need congressional approval because that would otherwise be an illegal compact among the states. You have money, if you get rid of the filibuster too, which would only take 51 votes in, in the Senate, although again, Republicans and Democrats have had 51 votes in the Senate before and the House and the president, but they've always chosen not to upset that rule, too, because it was seen that deliberation uh, was an important value. Uh, You've got a lot of other things that might potentially go out the window because then there would be no right for the minority to slow the majority down. But as I'm listening to you and you're the expert on the Constitution, these things could be done. You used the word legislatively a couple of times, but they'd be constitutional, correct? Well, they would, yeah, they would be constitutional, but they would, they would be, it's interesting, they would be constitutional, but they would uh, throw out important uh, structural buttresses for the way our politics yeah. run now. And they would be, I think they're anti-constitutional in spirit, in the sense that our constitution is not a pure democracy. It's a sure. republic, and it has a lot of guardrails, guardrails to slow down the majority. And all these, if you look at them, are designed uh, to allow 50.1% of the electorate to do whatever they want. Okay, but if these things happened, uh, the, the list, uh, all of them, most of them, and they went, as, as you described them, to the Supreme Court as it currently is constituted, the constituted present, they probably wouldn't rule it unconstitutional. Fair enough. Oh, I agree. I think, in fact, uh, uh-huh. most of the things we've talked about, the Supreme Court would even say this is not a case that we're allowed to hear. This is just something yep. that's up to the political branches or the states. And they, yeah, I think the court would stay out almost all of these. And this is, these would be huge, hugely consequential. These things, right? Hugely. Oh, yeah. If you look at our Constitution, I think our founders were wise in the basic setup. And then over time, we also added these traditions onto the Constitution, like the filibuster, uh, like adding states in pairs, like not uh, changing the membership of the Supreme Court, the numbers on the Supreme Court, just because one president wins and has a majority in the House and Senate. Because they're all designed to uh, enhance a stability, improve deliberation, uh, you know, to to not just be a pure majority rules country like the ones you see, for yeah, example, yeah, in Europe. Yeah. All right. So I'm glad that this this discussion, this point of discussion, not only leads into your book, but your book comprises this. So what are the things? I mean, because these are huge things the Democrats are proposing, and I believe they try to do them. What are the things that the president? has talked about or proposed that they have had uh, not only conniptions about, but constitutional objections to, which you think are unwarranted. What are the kinds of things that they're attacking him for as an enemy of the Constitution, which you describe in your new book, which everybody should get, Defender in Chief? Uh, It's interesting. I think that Trump 
he's pursuing his political self-interest, and the Constitution wants him to pursue his interest. He may not even intend to preserve the overall constitutional order, but as you remember from the Federalist Papers, uh, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, they want each branch to fight each other, to constantly be pressing, pressing the boundaries against each other, and Trump has certainly done that. And the second thing is Trump has actually used the Constitution to defend himself. So things that the Democrats have attacked him for these last four years, for threatening the Constitution, I argue have actually been Trump's efforts to protect the presidency. And what the Democrats want to do instead is to create this progressive government where the bureaucracy is independent and superior to elected politicians. So the two great crises of Trump's presidency have been the investigation by Bob Mueller into the Russia collusion, now turns out to be a hoax, and then impeachment. And if you look at both of those cases, the first one, President Trump was trying to reassert control of the president, the elected officials, over law enforcement. And you had a series of people like Jim Comey and people at the FBI, some people at the Justice Department who thought they were, as unelected bureaucrats, had the right to decide who was fit to be president or not. They were trying to defend their independence from political control. And I would say the second thing is true of impeachment. There again, you have a president who comes in, he's the elected official, he's in charge under the Constitution of Foreign Affairs, but he's trying to, uh, he has unorthodox uh, means, he has goals that the bureaucracy doesn't like. You look at impeachment, again, it was the Foreign Service that was trying to rise up and be rid of him because they didn't think he fit their model of how a president should do business. So in both cases, Trump was just trying to reassert the control of elected politicians through the Constitution over the government. And you had a government supported by Democrats in Congress that wanted to be free and independent. They claimed technical expertise or professional judgment, and they want to be free of political control. Any, has he taken any actions that are constitutionally questionable? You know, he's been taken to court so many times. But when you look at so this is part of what I go through in the book is when you look at the different lawsuits, actually Trump is making very reasonable claims that run in the traditions of past presidents. Uh, the most important one, I think, is to fire people. You remember all the great outrage uh, when he fired Jim Comey. Uh, actually, presidents have fired people from the very beginning. And Trump's favorite words are here, fired. But that happens to be the way the executive, how the president controls the executive branch, because everyone who works there is supposed to be assisting him in carrying out the law. Or you look at things like uh, the border wall, uh, or more recently, uh, the extension of unemployment benefits. These are all done under the claim that there's a national emergency. Once a president declares a national emergency, he has the right to move money around. It's not even a claim of constitutional power. These are things, uh, delegations that Congress has given the president the right to do. So he has been, for the most part, within the bounds of the Constitution. And the challenges that have come at him have been extra-constitutional or unconstitutional. Yeah, in fact, I, it's a, I think it's a strange form of projection where the people who are yeah. accusing him of being unconstitutional, as, as you said in the beginning of the show, Bill, those are the, they're the people who are proposing to right, get rid of the Electoral College. They also want to have independent councils uh, made permanent and criminalize our politics. And they're the ones who want to nationalize huge parts of the economy for a Green New Deal. So I say, who's really the, which side is really the one uh, that's trying to upset the constitutional traditions and structures that have uh, governed the country for two centuries? All right. This is not a question to you as a constitutional lawyer, but as a citizen, this, this, these sets of proposals by the Democrats just scare the hell out of me. Well, I think one of the things people uh, sometimes don't realize is uh, that, you know, too much democracy <laughs> may be an unhealthy thing uh, that, uh, you know, that, and, and, you know, if you look at what the Democrats are doing in these proposals, they, they want to take off the restraints off just pure majority, majoritarianism, we call it in the universities. But you know, I say, look at what happened to Europe in the last hundred years. You know, they have uh, governments that don't have a separation of powers. They have governments that don't have federalism. They don't have electoral colleges. They don't have, a lot of them don't have judicial review. Look at the terrible things their governments have done to their own people in the last hundred years. You know, our American constitution may be boring to progressives and liberals because it seems kind of plods along. It's slow, but it's deliberate and it's risk We don't make a lot of terrible mistakes like fascism and communism and socialism, all the other things that those uh, purely democratic governments in Europe have done. So I, I, I agree with you, but I think the Ameri 
American system, the Constitution has been a, one of the secrets of the country's success and to sort of try to undo all those traditions just because your party happens to win the majority uh, for a four, two-year period or four-year period. I think that could be a recipe for disaster. All right, and, and again, without your Constitution hat on, uh, but as prognosticator, uh, you get a Biden presidency, you get a Democrat Senate as well as House. I have no reason to think they wouldn't do these things. Part of the thing I did going through the book was actually tracking down exactly what they've said. So these are not uh, wild-eyed, wild-eyed proposals by professors or even things proposed by, say, the New York Times editorial board. Uh, these are proposals, that, uh, for example, packing the court to the Supreme Court, increasing it from nine to 15 just, justices. Would you know, Every time the party in charge wins uh, all three branches, why not just add a few more justices? You would just turn the courts into a political actor. Well, every almost every single nominee in the presidential nomination contest on the Democrat side this year agreed to do that. Uh, so these are these are these are the policies, the proposals of the Democratic Party going into this election. And these are these are laid out in the in the book and Defender in Chief. They on the book and you know they're laid out in the Democratic Party platform. The Green New Deal is another example, is another sweeping nationalization yeah. over. Think about energy, transportation, all the things that use energy. Think how far the reach of the federal government will go. Well, people say, some people say, yeah, but Joe Biden, I mean, he's really kind of a moderate. He won't let these things happen. I'm not so sure. Also, it's, it's interesting. This is actually an important message from the founding. Remember, the founders wanted the president to be independent from Congress. They wanted the president to check Congress. Uh, they were worried about the legislature becoming too powerful. And you could see uh, a replay of what happened in the first two years under the Obama administration, where uh, Congress really drove Obamacare. Obama being a relatively weak figure within the Democratic Party at first, he, he essentially let Congress drive the train. And Congress, uh, as you said, remember Nancy Pelosi said, we have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. Even Congress didn't know all the things it was stuffing into that bill. And they produce an unworkable effort to nationalize health care. I, I could easily see Biden, who uh, you know didn't campaign on a strong platform, you know, the, their convention didn't have a lot of ideas. If he's being confronted by Congress that keeps sending him these radical bills, he doesn't really have a lot of leverage to veto them. I see. All right. Defender in Chief is the book. John Yu is the author. Worth reading and worth reading now uh, as we walk up to this election. Who's really a threat to the Constitution? John Yu's book will tell you. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Oh, Bill, thanks a lot. It's been great to be back with you. Well, Claude, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Please share this pod with your friends. We'll catch up next week. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org.